You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader of the News and Observer, hosting this week. And with me are Andy Spay and Will Doran, also of the NNO, and Colin Campbell of the North Carolina Insider. Uh, this week, uh, the 2018 uh, election race, the race for Supreme Court started shaping up. Uh, we got uh, draft versions of the new districts where legislators will run in 2018 from the uh, special master who's redrawing some of the districts. Uh, we had uh, the news that the state is pulling the permit of uh, the company responsible for discharging pollution into the Cape Fear River. And uh, we had a visit from a former Trump aide at UNC, who spoke at UNC amid protests. Uh, so we'll get to all of that. Uh, Colin, let's start with uh, Anita Earls declaring for state Supreme Court. Uh, who is Anita Earls? And uh, what, uh, why is this the, well, first of all, let's start with who is Anita Earls, and then we'll get to some of the sort of strange circumstances around this election. But. Uh, uh, who is she and what's, she, what's her history? Yeah, so Anita Earls is the uh, leader of a group called the Southern Coalition for Social Justice, I believe is the official title. Uh, but basically she's best known as the uh, lead attorney on a lot of uh, election law cases. Uh, currently she's uh, litigating the uh, redistricting case that's resulting in uh, the redraw of some of the legislative districts, but she's been involved in other redistricting cases, uh, cases involving voter ID uh, requirements in North Carolina. So. Uh, very popular among Democrats, as you can imagine, um, sort of has been, uh, I guess, has portrayed herself more as a nonpartisan actor uh, up until now, but her announcement this week was held at the North Carolina Democratic Party headquarters. Uh, the party is uh, clearly very much supporting her bid for uh, Supreme Court justice, um, and she's going to be uh, running in the one uh, Supreme Court seat that's uh, available uh, on the ballot in 2018, the seat held by Republican uh, incumbent Justice Barbara Jackson. Uh, so the, the impact, if uh, Anita Earls were to win this seat, uh, would be we would go from a 5-4 to four split favoring Democrats on the Supreme Court uh, to a 6-3 to three split uh, favoring Democrats. So they could uh, certainly increase their advantage. Uh, Republicans, even if they hold on to the seat, just basically keep the status quo uh, of the current split. And, of course, she's been heavily involved in some topics that might come before the court, um, but she has said that she's going to uh, leave her current job uh, effective, I think, at the end of the year. Um, but there's some question about whether this election is even going to happen because Republicans have been toying with different ideas for how to change the way that candidates become judges. So what's going on there? Yeah, so this is a sort of a rare situation where you have a person running for an election uh, seat that they may not ever make it to the ballot on. Um, so the Senate is currently looking at a couple of different options. Um, the details haven't really been released yet in terms of this merit selection plan that has been floated. The idea that uh, rather than electing judges, you could have a system where uh, somebody makes the appointments, be it the governor, the legislature, or uh, an outside uh, group of uh, legal experts, or some combination of all three, uh, and then the judges would then be put up for a retention election at some point after their term, where uh, voters would basically vote up or down, do we want to keep this judge, but there wouldn't be an opposing candidate uh, on the ballot at that point. Uh, so that's one option. The other option that uh, the House has already approved is simply redistricting 
for the Superior Court and District Court seats, which of course is not going to impact uh, the statewide elections. Uh, what will impact the statewide elections is uh, the current law that cancels the judicial primaries next year, including the statewide uh, judicial races. Um, so unless that's changed, which there has been some talk, depending on what's decided in January about what to do about how we select judges, uh, then there's not going to be a judicial primary. So what you could have is more than two candidates on the ballot in uh, November. So Anita Earls might not be the only Democrat running. What you could have is three Democrats running against the one Republican, or you could have multiple Republicans, multiple Democrats, and whoever gets the most votes wins, even if that's only 15% of the vote, for example. Uh, so that's another sort of odd complicating factor in, in this whole race that may not even lead to an election, depending on what uh, the legislature decides to do. Uh, of course, I should note, if they do go to the merit selection process, that's going to take a constitutional amendment. So we won't actually know that's going to happen until after the primary, because if they put that on the ballot, it's probably going to be on the May primary. And then if it takes effect, then the November elections that Earls is in will go away and will probably keep Jackson in office. Okay, so very complicated. And this is also the first Supreme Court election, I believe, that will be partisan again in many years. Yeah, right? because the last cycle, um, uh, I believe last year, the uh, Supreme Court race was nonpartisan, so the party labels of the candidates didn't show up on the ballot, but the Court of Appeals races next door on the ballot uh, were partisan last year. Uh, and so the impact of that in uh, last year's election was that you had a Democrat defeat a Republican incumbent for the Supreme Court, and then uh, Republicans swept the Court of Appeals races. They won every single one with the, the R next to their names on the ballot. So there was some c concern that uh, perhaps voters were confused as to who the Democrat and who the Republican were on the uh, Supreme Court races. So that uh, information will now be on the ballot uh, one way or the other if there's an election for Supreme Court this coming year. And it seems like last year when you had pretty much a Republican year, the Trump winning in North Carolina and, uh, and Richard Burr winning in North Carolina, um, the party label would have hurt the Democrat uh, this year. seems like it might help the Democrat. Yeah, the I mean, the, if you're looking at Virginia's election results recently as any sort of harbinger of uh, what party is going to have a better shot in 2018, which I think a lot of people are, uh, then you're going to have a perhaps a Democratic wave year. And uh, certainly for uh, judicial races, uh, I think in the past, incumbency was always an advantage when voters have very little information. They're going to tend to favor the incumbent because it, they assume, you know, this person is in office and I don't know anything bad about them. They're probably okay and we can return them for another term. Uh, you add party labels into the picture and people are going to tend to vote whichever party they're affiliated with. Okay. Well, and it's hard to imagine that uh, legislators on both sides aren't looking at that as they consider whether they even want to have a an election next yeah, year. Yeah, so. and that's sort of, uh, I think, one thing about Earl's uh, jumping into this race is that uh, I, I think it probably makes it more likely that Republicans will look at a strategic advantage in not having judicial races. I know they're probably looking more long-term than just one year out as they decide what the best plan is, but certainly if you're just looking at uh, who'd get an advantage based on which system in, uh, in 2018, uh, I think with a candidate like Earl's who's perhaps a stronger, better-known candidate than a lot of uh, judicial candidates who are running for Supreme Court or Court of Appeals, uh, that's going to make it harder for the, the Republican to win. And we already see within hours of Earl's announcement, uh, Dallas Woodhouse and the NCGOP coming out and fairly strongly criticizing Earl's, which you don't often see that early in an election cycle. And what were they saying about her? Uh, their concern, uh, the, the main argument was, uh, I think they described it as she had favored 
uh, essentially canceling out the election results in 2016. Uh, Dallas didn't get into the details of what he's referring to, uh, but it appears to be a reference to uh, the redistricting case where Earls had pushed for a 2017 special legislative election under newly drawn districts, uh, and then everyone who was elected in 2016 under the districts found to be unconstitutional would essentially have one-year terms and would be up for election in 2017. So he's arguing by having sort of a low turnout 2017 race, you'd be canceling out the votes of the people who voted in 2016. Um, I'm sure people would view that differently depending on how they feel about having a special election. But uh, that was the main thrust. I think he also pointed out her support, uh, her op opposition, I should say, uh, to the state's voter ID law, which you know he says is popular and, and some polling does seem to suggest that a majority of North Carolinians did like the voter ID requirement. Um, well, that's a good segue into uh, redistricting. So the other thing we learned about the 2018 races uh, this week was that there will be new districts from the uh, special master. These still we don't know be for sure. Them. We so this is the bizarre well, thing right. about this is right. that the special master has been tasked with coming up with proposed new maps. Uh, at the same time, the court hasn't f uh, officially thrown out the maps that the Republicans adopted in August. So they're. Uh, I think the plan now is that they're going to consider what the special master has come up with alongside what the Republicans initially proposed. Um, and sometime in January, we could get a ruling on exactly what lines are going to be used in the 2018 elections. So there's a lot of uncertainty around this, but he did come out with, and this is uh, Nathan Persilli, the uh, special master who was appointed by the court. Yeah, Stanford University law professor out in, as Republicans like to point out, out in California. Hmm came out with his new maps uh, for a number of districts, uh, mostly in, in Wake and Mecklenburg and Guilford, I think some down in Cumberland. Uh, and so people started to be able to see whether there would be multiple incumbents put into the same district who would have to run against each other. Now, he's going to apparently tweak those um, based on feedback that he gets. But assuming the ones that we have now are the ones that they have to run in, um, who's going to have to be, who's going to be double bunked and who's going to have to run against each other? Yeah, so there's a fair number of these, and this is basically based on the fact that personally has, has noted that he didn't take incumbency into account in his initial draft maps, uh, that he's willing to take it into account. So I think uh, Friday is the, uh, today is the deadline uh, for um, the different parties in the lawsuit to submit uh, proposed changes that would uh, address the, the double bunking issue. But under the initial proposal, uh, most of the double bunkings are in Guilford County. Uh, you're looking at pairing Republican John Hardister with Democrat uh, Amos Quick in the House. Also in the House, pairing John Blust, a Republican, with Democrat Pricey Harrison. And in the Senate from Guilford County, uh, pairing uh, Senator Republican Senator Trudy Wade with uh, Democrat Gladys Robinson. Uh, that's all in Guilford. Uh, and then there's one pairing in Wake County with uh, Representative Greer Martin and Representative Cynthia Ball in the same district. Both of them are Democrats. Uh, Cynthia Ball told me earlier this week that uh, she and Martin are actually working together on some proposed tweaks that they were going to try to get the uh, parties to the lawsuit to include in their uh, suggested changes uh, in a way that would allow uh, Martin and, and Ball to continue to be in separate districts. Um, and there's a little bit of confusion down in Mecklenburg. Um, at first glance, it does appear that uh, Andy Doolin, a Republican representative, is not in the same district as uh, Democrat uh, Representative Becky Carney. 
but under the way the Republicans drew the maps in August, Carney's voting precinct is actually split so that the majority of it is actually in Doolin's district, but her house is still in her district. Um, and it's unclear on the maps that Persley put out uh, whether that precinct is still split up um, in his version of the map. So it's possible she could have gotten double bunked, but we don't really know for sure with the data that's been put out. What else are you seeing uh, in terms of uh, people double bunked? Anything else interesting in there? Um, not too much in terms of double bunking. I think that pretty much covers the people that are uh, potentially stuck with each other. Um, now, the other thing is they couldn't even decide on who's running for office, right? Yeah. So there's like there's somebody who there was a legislator, and I forget who it was, who the two sides couldn't even dis- couldn't even agree on whether they were running. Yeah, because I think a lot of people haven't made up their minds yet on whether they're seeking another term. So the court's request to say tell us which people are planning to run, so that we're not uh, drawing districts around somebody who's not even running. Um, that that's been a point of confusion. Uh, I guess another interesting aspect of this is the Cumberland County Senate seat. Um, back in August, you might recall where Republicans agreed to Democratic Senator Ben Clark's request to extend the district into a neighborhood in uh, Cumberland County where he has a second home and I guess was considering relocating his primary residence. Uh, the special master has taken that out um, and uh, sort of changed that district down to where uh, Clark's current home in Hoke County, still in his district, but if he did decide to move, he would be in Senator Wesley Meredith's district. Uh, so that's something we'll be interested to see if there's a request to change that or if Clark has just decided he'll he'll stay put in Hope County and won't move to the other house. Um, I think in general, looking at these maps, uh, if you just look at the shapes, the takeaway is that they're a lot more compact. You see a lot of less of the sort of weird amoeba shapes that you get in sort of the stereotypical gerrymandering maps. Um, for example, Guilford County, I think the Senate split up is that the urban core of Greensboro is a district, and then everything else in Guilford County is a different district, um, which, you know, would sort of give you one solidly Democratic district that represents urban interest, one that represents more of the suburban interest of the county. Um, so I think a lot of uh, fans of nonpartisan redistricting are happy with that aspect of what uh, personally has come up with. Granted, that could all change if he has to make tweaks to uh, address some of the uh, incumbency issues. Before we leave gerrymandering, did you guys see the uh, article in, I believe it was in Politico, dealing with the 5K, gerrymandering 5K? Yeah. So we had written about this race. It's in the shape of the, in fact, it's right along the line uh, between the the two dis- congressional districts in Asheville. But somebody, a writer from Charlotte, I think, actually came yeah, and Yeah, it's a guy from Our State Magazine, but he was writing for Politico in, in this case. Yeah, and it was just, it was interesting because he talked about how, uh, you know, when you zoom in on these, there's some very weird shapes that aren't at all related to uh, Democrats versus Republicans. They're just this effort to make the two districts the exact same population. And so yeah. you have to kind of route it around different houses. So that, that was kind of an interesting aspect I hadn't really considered of, of redistricting. Yeah, I that gerrymandering 5K was fun to run. He's like, why are we turning right here? This <laughs> seems to make no sense from any sort of logical routing standpoint, but here we are. We're following the maps of the congressional lines. Some of the people whose yards they were running through apparently were very confused. There was not sidewalks always. <laughs> so so. Uh, anyway, I got a kick out of that story. Um, so, Will, you wrote yesterday about uh, the um, toughest penalty yet that had been imposed on the company dumping the chemical Gen X in the Cape Fear River. So what happened? Yeah, we, um, we've been following this since this summer. There's a factory down in, south of Fayetteville, um, kind of on the Cumberland Blade and Cutting Line, that makes Teflon, uh, you know, which is a nonstick coating for your pots and pans and other things. Um, 
they have been uh, dumping a chemical called Gen X into the Cape Fear River. That's where all of southeastern North Carolina gets their drinking water from. So anyone south of Fayetteville has been drinking this water that had Gen X into it. That was all unbeknownst to the state. When the factory started using this Gen X chemical, they told the state, yeah, we're going to be using this, but don't worry, we're never actually going to be dumping into the river. We've got you know, internal processes to make sure that it doesn't get out. That wasn't true. It got into the river. Um, the state has been under some criticism from lawmakers from both parties and environmental groups and you know, just local residents for basically not really taking a ton of action against this company to, one, figure out what was going on until now, and two, to stop it once they did figure out what was going on. Uh, but on Thursday, Thursday they did finally um, pull the company's permit to discharge uh, into the river, and that came after uh, they had originally, the state had originally said that this company was working with them, you know, they were happy that, you know, they were cooperating, but then it turns out they weren't really cooperating and that they had made an, another sp massive spill. They, the state said it increased the concentration of Gen X a hundredfold in the river uh, that the company never told the state about, and that was back in October, but that only came to light maybe a week or two ago, um, they finally admitted to it. And so the state basically said, enough is enough. We're pulling your permit. Um, and so it, it's unclear what that's going to mean for the future of this company. Uh, here, I, I think they're a pretty major employer in the area, um, especially in Bladen County. But, you know, m maybe they can keep operating. And, you know, obviously if they, you know, figure out some way to settle their differences with the state and, you know, convince them that they're going to be a good actor from here on out, you know, we would have every reason to think that the state would let them have their permit back. But for the moment, uh, they have been stopped, and uh, I guess we'll see where the state goes from here. There could be further civil actions. There could be potential criminal actions, uh, but we haven't really – we haven't heard anything on that front. And meanwhile, the, the legislature has given some money to deal with this, right? Yeah, they they spent about half a million dollars uh, earlier this year um, uh, to go into trying to figure out, one, how this spill happened and went undetected for so long. Some people say it's been going on for decades. Uh, not really sure exactly the, you know, the whole timeline of it. And then also to figure out what exactly this means for uh, health hazards and environmental hazards. Uh, the this this chemical that the company's using is uh, basically replaced a different chemical that they were forced to stop using because it was so dangerous to humans. Um, and so this is a, a close cousin to that one, but you know is supposed to be safer. Um, but it's new. It only basically came into existence in 2009, 2010. So it's largely untested. We're not really sure necessarily what it does to people. Uh, a lot of people have a feeling that it's probably not good. Um, but yeah, so we're trying to figure that out. Uh, that was part of the money that the legislature set aside. Um, we've reported before that uh, none of the money the legislature set aside went to DEQ, which is the main regulatory body, um, where Cooper actually vote, uh, vetoed the law that put this money aside um, because he thought that, one, they should have spent more money, and two, more money should have gone to DEQ. Um, but, you know, as is typical with uh, Roy Cooper's battles with the legislature, the legislature won out um, and got their way. It, it's clearly having some political ramifications because this week was also the week that we saw um, Senator Burr and Senator Tillis come out against a Trump nominee 
uh, for EPA. He was actually, he's not, he is nominated to serve as the head of the EPA's Office of Chemical Safety and Pollution Prevention. And uh, the AP had a report uh, showing his ties to the chemical industry. And soon after that, we saw um, Burr and Tillis both uh, oppose his nomination, which brings him pretty close to being uh, torpedoed, really. And it was a surprise, at least to me, um, but apparently, uh, and there may be more going on, but apparently uh, this, this Gen X issue, as well as the um, water pollution at Camp Lejeune and other things we've seen, has, has made um, the senators from here pretty yeah, sensitive. Yeah, this is surprising because you don't normally see uh, Tillis and Burr as sort of the uh, senators who uh, splinter off from uh, the rest of their party um, on, on some of these contentious votes. And it looks like from the story I read in the AP, um, there might be one or two others who are concerned about this, but the bulk of the Republicans have not come out against this particular nominee. But again, it's, it really shows the political power of these uh, water quality issues that North Carolina is dealing with. Yeah, well, and I mean, when you're talking about one, something with the Gen X that affects basically, you know, everyone who's on a municipal water system in, you know, southeastern North Carolina, that's a lot of people. And then two, yeah, the, the Kemp Lejeune thing is a huge, huge disaster, basically. Uh, that's been going on for years. Uh, Tillis has made that a big priority of his in the Senate, actually fighting with the VA to try and get benefits for some of the Marines that and their families that were, you know, uh, you know, basically had their health ruined by, uh, you know, t- terrible water at Camp Lejeune. There, it's been a huge fight that he's been pretty involved in. So that didn't surprise me as much as uh, as Burr did, but I guess Tillis did a... I, I would assume that Tillis was probably the one that convinced Burr. Maybe it was the other way around. All right. Well, we'll keep following that. Um, Andy, uh, you wrote about some of, the, uh, uh, some of what was said when Sebastian Gorka came to speak at UNC. So who is Sebastian Gorka, first of all, before we get into detail about um, what he had to say, and why were people mad that he was uh, coming to speak there? Gorka is known for being uh, an outspoken, what should I say, uh, critic of things like the Iran, the Iran deal, uh, nuclear deal, um, and that's sort of his wheelhouse is uh, it, it, America's foreign policy. And he's considered a controversial figure just for things he said about uh, Islam and terrorists and Nazis, and uh, I could go on. But uh, he's important because uh, for a while he was an advisor to our president. Uh, and before he either left or was fired, I think the the actual uh, whatever what actually happened is a little murky, but. Um, he was someone who had the president's ear and uh, continues to make uh, media appearances on Fox News and uh, other places. Uh, and so he was invited by the UNC College Republicans to come speak in Chapel Hill on Monday. And so, uh, and of course, he was also a Breitbart editor uh, right. at one point. So uh, what what did he say about, um, well, we'll get to what he said about Iran in just a second, but uh, what did he say about uh, the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda uh, and groups like that. He uh, had, if you expected, you know, a, a full-throated defense of Trump and critique of, you know, the media and fake news, uh, then um, you would have been uh, pleased with what he said. Um, but he did talk about ISIS and other uh, terrorist groups. He said that uh, electing Donald Trump has boosted morale in the military uh, so much that they are and I want to get this quote right, 
they're now, um, quote, stacking jihadis like cordwood, end quote. And I don't know what cordwood is, but I... And he's I, refer- it sounds like he was supposedly quoting somebody who told him that in the military, right? Right. And he didn't name that person, but he said morale is up. He said something along the lines of, you know, Trump ha- is letting the military do what it's meant to do instead of holding them back, like he accused uh, President Obama of doing. Um, we have not fact-checked these claims. So uh, I can't say whether or not they're true. But he went on to talk about how uh, the uh, the U.S. needs to not only, you know, fight ISIS on the battlefield and other terrorist groups on the battlefield, but we need to engage as a country in an anti-propaganda campaign. He said that ISIS is effective at uh, recruiting uh, uh, new members, new you know fighters. Um, I've seen media reports that say that's because of our president, but he he might take the uh, opposite approach. Uh, But he said we need to engage in a counter-propaganda campaign that makes the jihadi flag as reviled as the swastika. And he said uh, right now being a jihadi from Marseille to Boston is sexy. That's not good. It's sexy to choose the – it's to them, he's saying, it's sexy to choose the life of jihad. We have to make it unsexy. So – and so he, he also talked about Iran. In fact, he said that was the bigger threat. Um, so he made kind of an interesting claim about Iran that you did fact check. Um, so what did he have to say? He was talking about uh, who the most dangerous groups are, and he talked about the divide between some Sunni nations and uh, Shia nations. And he said that uh, Shia jihadism, uh, which he said uh, Iran funds, uh, is more dangerous than anything else in the region. So he he claimed in sort of a a long explanation um, that uh, they believe in these weird thoughts and that that the regime every Friday declares war on us, war and destruction. Uh, And so, you know, there's obviously there's some hyperbole in there, but when you tell a group of college students that another country is declaring war on us every Friday, that's something that should raise eyebrows. Declarations of war are definitely different than, um, you know, chanting or just, you know, saying things like, you know, we're going to come at you with fire and fury or, you know, the, the things that, uh, North Korea's, uh, leader and our president sort of, um, throw out into the media. So, uh, he said that the Iran declares war on us every Friday. So this is about the chance that they do on Friday, uh, in Iran of death to America. That's right. And he's, you know, right to reference those. They, they do chant that, um, uh, many of them, many of them are also experts tell us, you know, these professors and, um, experts at think tanks told PolitiFact that, you know, there are people that favor diplomacy and that, uh, want to, uh, you know, chart a respectable, you know, buttoned up course, you know, uh, for their country. But as one professor told me, Iran is not good at PR uh, because she said uh, a lot of the hardliners go out there and and it, just like in America these days, you know, uh, some of our primaries uh, candidates try to take stronger stances than their opponents she says that happens in Iran, too, where they say, well, I, I hate America. Well, I want death to America. Well, I'm going to kill America. <laughs> like, you know, they, the, the rhetoric just gets out of control. Um, so we thought we'd, at PolitiFact, we'd push pack, past that and see ha- what is the 
you know, what are the proper processes uh, for declaring war in Iran? Can they just declare it willy-nilly, or do they have, like America does, a, uh, you know, formal procedure? And they do. Uh, the uh, the supreme leader uh, is able to start the process, and then he has a, a cabinet of sorts um, uh, and some elected leaders that would have to go along with it. Um, and but they haven't done that. There's no evidence to suggest that they've uh, declared war against us. They are engaging in proxy wars and you know funding terrorist groups. They're state sponsor of terrorism, but. That's not the same thing as the government outwardly saying, you know, dear America, we're coming to attack you. Uh, because th that would have very strong um, and probably swift consequences. Okay. So we rated that false. Okay. So uh, Sebastian Gorka gets a false. And what was his uh, reaction to uh, the experts, uh, what the experts had to say? Well, we reached out to him uh, on Twitter and through email before the fact check went up, and he didn't respond. After, uh, after it went online, though, he responded to our emails uh, and asked, is this a joke? Your experts say, hold on, I want to get this right. Uh, <laughs> he said, quote, is this meant to be a joke? Death to America is not a declaration of war, according to your quote-unquote experts? He, he, he said, get real experts or just stop wasting my time. And that was the end of the email. You know, I've heard his uh, responses to reporters are considered, like, epic on a, a national level. Like, every reporter, like, keeps theirs and tweets out the best ones. All right. Well, I think that's as good a note as any to uh, take a break on and uh, come right back with Headliner of the Week. Stay with us. I found a toy dinosaur over on the playground by Smith Street. Uh, it had this phone number on it, and, well, I just wanted to make sure the dinosaur made it back to its little owner. When I found the little sippy cup, I just had to give you a call. It's for a kid, you know? I know my son gets super attached to the smallest things, even a fire truck, and I'd be happy to drop it off. We'd do anything for kids, yet one in six children in the U.S. struggle with hunger. Help end childhood hunger near you. Learn how at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. And we're back, and now it's time for everybody's favorite segment, Headliner of the Week, where we decide the most important person, place, or thing in this week's news. Uh, Colin Campbell, who's your Headliner of the Week? I'm going to get a guy that uh, I hadn't heard of before this week. I'm not sure anyone else did, but uh, possibly the, the best-sounding name and job title in law enforcement, and it's uh, Dirk German. He is a special agent in charge with the State Bureau of Investigation and also runs the uh, Information Sharing Center that the SBI runs. He was giving a presentation to legislators this week uh, about different sort of information sharing uh, programs that they've got, uh, and he made some interesting predictions uh, about uh, some of the protests going on in the area. Uh, most notably, he said that the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, which is that natural gas pipeline that's going to cut across eastern North Carolina if it's approved, uh, is going to draw protesters in, similar to what we saw in North Dakota with the Dakota Access Pipeline, uh, and that they're going to be mostly uh, uh, outside agitators and professional protesters were the, the terms that uh, Special Agent German uh, used in his uh, comments to legislators. So it'll be interesting to see if that pops up. Uh, 
He also talked about uh, an, an effort at the uh, Silent Sam protest to use social media to identify what they determined to be the, the agitators who were going to cause trouble, uh, monitor them closely, and then arrest them as soon as they began causing problems, which they believed uh, de-escalated the protest were the, the words that uh, Special Agent German and his uh, staff uh, used in this presentation. So for, uh, for making a very interesting prediction that I hadn't heard before, uh, my pick is uh, Special Agent in Charge, Dirk German. Has okay. he been hanging out with Dan Forrest? That's a the word agitator. I feel like doesn't get used very often. Yeah, it and sort of has a political connotation, which I think is interesting when you hear it from law enforcement. I think it, it sort of becomes sort of a, a technical term within the law enforcement business, but they often don't use it publicly, recognizing that it, it does sort of have that uh, negative political connotation, especially when you say professional protester, because that I think implies that people are being paid to protest, which I don't know that there's much evidence of that either in North Dakota or anywhere else. They, they may be people who come from outside the location to uh, protest a particular project or issue, but uh, certainly it's not something you hear from law enforcement every day to use such strong terms about the people who are protesting. Can you imagine how many, if there was such a thing as paid protesters like a company that you could hire? How many college kids would sign up? I feel yeah. like I would have heard about that and done it just to, you know, make rent payments in college. Yeah, I mean, it would be a good deal if you could get it. I'm sure a lot of people, 10 bucks an hour, would go out and wave a sign. Um, but, you know, there's no evidence that that's occurring on sort of a uh, large scale. That's next in the gig economy. Okay, um, Dirk German. I'm going to be able to, I'm going to say that as many times as possible. So I'll say once again that we have Dirk German in the, special agent Dirk German in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, Will Doran, who is your headliner? Uh, my headliner is the surprisingly controversial Raleigh Christmas Parade uh, that's coming up this Saturday. Um, it uh, has just devolved into this war between WRAL and ABC 11. Um, uh, Santa ended up resigning, and it's, it's just been this whole huge fight. It's, you know gotten some uh, great hilarious takes on it. Um, political fans will appreciate uh, Dallas Woodhouse was tweeting uh, this morning, about 24 hours before the parade's supposed to start, that uh, UN peacekeepers and the National Guard are on their way to Raleigh to keep keep everything under control, and that you know he had heard that Trump was uh, summoning both TV stations to Camp David for peace accords. And <laughs> I do have to wonder, are we going to get some Anchorman-style uh, street fighting in between, you know, like <laughs> Big Weather Schwinnaker and Greg Fischel tomorrow? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll, uh, Greg about, had a trident. Know, it was very strange. <laughs> talk about outside agitators, you know. But, um, but yeah, no, it... Uh, WNCN yeah. is the outside agitator. Yeah, exactly. the other yeah. TV station that's not involved... <laughs> but uh, no, I, people are just, for whatever reason, obsessed with this story. You know, we track all the numbers here in the newsroom for how articles are doing it. I mean, this one is just blowing up. Everyone wants to know the latest drama and the Christmas wars. Not the war on Christmas, but, you know. Which is a separate thing. <laughs> <laughs> Only that for Starbucks. Exactly. Um, but uh, that also leads me to uh, someone, I don't know who, I guess just some random person sent me a... Uh, a Christmas card here at the at the office the other day of uh, of, of Trump wishing people Merry Christmas. Um, so I, I appreciate people getting in the holiday spirit before Thanksgiving. I don't really know, you know, you know, it's not even Thanksgiving yet. Like, yeah. you know, leave, leave Christmas still after Thanksgiving. Yeah, but if you want an early start on Christmas, you there's apparently this uh, Donald Trump rocking Christmas card, and you open it and you get this. We're going to start saying Merry Christmas again. Merry Christmas. 
So the president in the form of a greeting card, there you have it. So that's my headliner this, this of the week. Christmas card on the front of it has Trump in a Santa hat. It's really Donald's voice, in case you thought that was an <laughs> yeah. impersonator during that. And it says, making Christmas great again. So that is, that is really something from your anonymous uh, secret Santa here. We're going to have to tweet out a picture of you holding that or something. <laughs> <laughs> All right. HotusGreetings.com, uh, is that where this came from? Yeah, apparently there's a website for it. Okay. You can also get um, Hillary laughing print uh, pin. I don't know what, what she laughs about, but I guess you can buy that too. Wow. Okay. Uh, so the Raleigh Christmas Parade, was that the actual headliner nominee, Ra- Raleigh Christmas Parade? Correct. Okay, so in the Not hat. Not Donald Trump's Christmas card, yeah. that was just an aside. <laughs> so uh, in the hat for headliner of the week, we have Dirk German, special agent, and the Raleigh Christmas Parade uh, in the fight between uh, two local TV stations over who will broadcast um, the big parade and all the, the ratings glory that comes with it. Uh, Andy Spay, who is your headliner of the week? Uh, I am going to our uh, News Observer website for this, where Abby Bennett wrote about four North Carolina Republicans disciplined for, quote, disloyalty to the party. Uh, <laughs> this one came on Thursday. Uh, I'm sorry, Wednesday, four members of the party have been ex- effectively excommunicated. Uh, they were members of the Haywood County Republican Party. Does anyone know where that is? Just west of Asheville, I believe. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Waynesville is the main town in Haywood County. I see. Uh, and for their disloyalty, they were brought before the main uh, state Republican yeah, had party. had to drive, what, four hours to Raleigh to have their, uh, their day in Republican court. That's right, and I think Dallas Woodhouse was there um, and other, you know, party officials. Uh, let's see. The plan, they, what are they accused of? Um, party disloyalty, I guess, was the technical term. Party disloyalty. Uh, so basically I'm, they I'm were looking, accused of supporting Democratic candidates and uh, not sufficiently supporting Republican ones. These guys were uh, essentially to the right of their, their party and right. uh, were – supporting, a, I think in one case, a conservative Democrat. Some of the details in the stories by the Mountaineer uh, and the Smoky Mountain News um, were just fascinating. Here, here you go. I found some of them. Uh, accusations against the Haywood Five, as they're known notori- notoriously, <laughs> include doctoring Republican voter guides to support Democratic candidates, email, uh, writing emails criticizing Republicans, authoring blog posts to support Democrats and sharing pro-libertarian or pro-Democrat posts on Facebook, according to the Mountaineer and the Smoky Mountain News. Uh, (laughs) uh, We should note that they pushed back against these accusations, uh, albeit um, and weren't effective. I'm intrigued by Haywood County, where the Democrats are apparently to the right of the Republicans in some races. (laughs) At least Um, this one person was, (laughs) I guess. Yeah. Yes, uh, I. But from what I can tell, this is an unusual development, not only for supporting Democrats, although they did support Raleigh Mayor candidate uh, Charles Francis. Many Republicans around here did um, again, and he lost. But uh, yeah, this is definitely interesting. It doesn't seem to happen very often, and uh, no one was happy afterward. And, and, you know, you've been writing about some uh, dissatisfaction in the uh, in the Democratic ranks over that Raleigh race. Is anybody going to be excommunicated from the Democratic Party over that, uh, or do they even have a process of uh, 
uh, of uh, charging people for party disloyalty like the Republicans apparently do. You know what? Maybe we, we should don't find know. out. Yeah. We, I know that uh, Yvonne Hawley, rep, uh, how, a representative in our uh, state house, uh, was not happy with uh, certain people. She didn't want to name names, but she was very upset that officials like uh, former Governor Jim Hunt and Josh Stein, the Attorney General, and um, Darren Jackson, the, the House Minority Leader, all supported unaffiliated Mayor Nancy McFarland instead of uh, Charles Francis. And I guess the penalty in the Democratic Party is that they want uh, Hunt's name off the fancy fundraising dinner. So I guess you don't necessarily get excommunicated, but uh, you don't get to have your name on the uh, title of the fancy dinner. Right. There's supposedly a petition circulating that will come before the party in January, I think, is when they meet. So we'll see how that goes. And that fate has already happened to Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson. They've all, they've all been kicked out of the dinner names uh, in the Democratic Party. So, um, okay, well, that is, was a tangent-filled uh, headliner of the week segment. We have uh, to bring back the bell from the Andy Curlis <laughs> days to shut ourselves up a little bit more. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, but three really good ones. Uh, it's very hard, very difficult to pick from there, but um, I'm going to choose Will as our winner this week uh, for the Raleigh Christmas Parade that um, just keeps on um, providing news. Uh, maybe I would have gone with the Fired Santa as the headliner, but um, anyway, the Raleigh Christmas Parade is our headliner of the week, and everybody uh, should... I'm going to start saying Merry Christmas again. Thanks, President <laughs> Trump. Thank you, President Trump. And uh, from Andy Spay, Will Dorn, Colin Campbell, and President Trump, uh, I'm Jordan Schrader. Uh, catch us next week on Domecast. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News & Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the daily print edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.